0: Holy crap, it's here. This has taken me seven months of my life to complete, and I am super pleased how it turned out. What is Miguel talking about? It's my new book, Expat Secrets. You're going to be able to find it on Amazon right now. Let me just give you the full name of the book because I think it says a lot, okay? Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. Boom. I really like that. Basically, the book breaks down everything you need to know for leading an international life. This is timely information and modern, and it's a fun read. You can buy your copy right now by going to Amazon and searching Expat Secrets. This will really help support the show to grow. And if you want to be an awesome human being, what I want you to do is leave the book an honest review on Amazon. It actually makes a huge difference to new authors like me. Seriously, I mean this. Please get a copy of the book and please leave the book a review. It's just good karma. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is the author of multiple best-selling books on identity development for businesses and individuals. He is also the founder of Identity Publication, an organization that produces and publishes books containing ideas that matter. He has lived and worked in more than 50 countries and continues to use his experiences to help others along the path of self-fulfillment through exploration. Please welcome to the show, Gregory Deal. Gregory, how are you? I'm pretty good. It's a very warm evening in Davao, Philippines today, where I am. Davao, Philippines. Where is that? Where is Davao?
1: That is on the southern island of Mindanao, uh, which the island as a whole actually has somewhat of a controversial reputation uh, reports of uh, lack of safety, but Davao itself is actually quite welcoming and enjoyable.
0: Mm, Interesting. Well, I would love to hear about your experience there in a minute, but I want to get a little bit of information, a little bit of your backstory and how you started Identity uh, Publications.
1: Well, that is the culmination of a long journey I've been on of trying to get better as a communicator, which... uh, started mostly in business contexts, and in fact, my first book was all about how to communicate more meaningful ideas as an entrepreneur or a small business owner. That book was called Brand Identity Breakthrough, and since then, it has really blown up into much bigger, broader, more philosophical concepts, And as I got better at the writing and publishing side of things, because self-publishing is so fun and easy to do now, I decided to go into business strictly helping people who have important, meaningful ideas to write books that are important and meaningful to them and potentially to the people who read them and then to make them commercially successful. So that's how Identity Publication started.
0: Okay, interesting. So explain to me a little bit about what it is you actually do at Identity Publications.
1: Well, I actually am about to release a book that covers exactly that question. The name of the new book is The Influential Author, How and Why to Write, Publish, and Sell Nonfiction Books That Matter. And what I do is I take people who think they have something important to say and maybe they have an idea for a book they'd like to write about that important thing or maybe they already have a rough draft or maybe they think they're ready to bring it to publication but they need help refining it in some way like making sure that the message is coming across the way that it's supposed to uh testing it in all kinds of different ways with their specific market for the book the people that they think are best equipped to read and enjoy it and then of course all the factors of presentation that go into it like a cover design and and the book description and everything that's going to take to make sure that book is being represented accurately to the world and that it actually sells as well as you would expect a traditionally published book to do which is typically the problem that self-published authors have that even if they have a great idea for a book they really don't know how to make it actually look and function like we expect a real book to do, like the kind of thing you would pay 20 or $30 for. So I'm all about making sure that good ideas get presented correctly and get into the hands and the minds where they're supposed to. And then, of course, that their authors get uh, reimbursed monetarily through the financial success
0: of their book. So you have, say, an entrepreneur or a business owner or someone who has an idea, and they come to you and they have the expertise they have the understanding of the topic, but perhaps their writing skills are not quite to the level to write the book themselves. Is that kind of where you step in and you help ghostwrite it? Or how does that look? That's one potential situation. I I mean, everybody's writing skill
1: is at a different level. And really what I find the difference between serviceable writing and great writing to be is simply the level of polish and refinement to it. I think anybody who has good ideas can get those good ideas down on paper as words. What makes it work as a book is just making sure that they're all presented in the right order and that they're phrased in ways that are entertaining to read and that you're not repeating yourself an unnecessary number of times and that you're not skipping certain steps in your knowledge. And that's the part that most people not even necessarily that they don't even have the skill for, it; that they just don't have the time for or the endurance for, it, because it just takes so many hours of going over it over, over and over and over again to make sure this really flows like the book is supposed to, and I'm not left with any questions at the end, and I feel like I've gotten everything I was supposed to get to from this message. So very often, yes, that's the case. that People come simply with a series of ideas that they may have already written down, or maybe they haven't, and they need to make sure that that actually comes out looking like a book is supposed
0: to. And then from that process, you do it through CreateSpace or like another self publishing place, or you actually publish it yourself?
1: CreateSpace is the most popular print on demand company for paperback books. Actually, they're now being merged with KDP Print. Uh, Ingram Spark is the next best one for hardcover as well. Uh, and Amazon is by far the most predominant sales channel for self published books. So I, I definitely think that's the right option for any self-published author to use as their primary sales avenue but there are other distributors and other printers that are available if for some reason somebody thought that those weren't the best option for them
0: okay interesting because i'm just i'm i'm now i've just finished my sixth iteration of my book and it is now being uh formatted to actually look like a book opposed to just a Word document, which is what I wrote on, or maybe a Google document. And even today I sent it to someone and they found mistakes in there that uh, that I hadn't noticed, that Grammarly hadn't noticed, and my editor hadn't noticed. And so I, I find the whole topic of books and book production and creating a book so fascinating because I've been working on mine for literally six months and had to live learn everything from scratch on my own. So I can see the advantage of working with someone who's done this before and someone who doesn't have the time to make all the mistakes that I have made and, and really wants um, hand-holding through the whole process.
1: Yeah, well, the thing about a book is, especially because they typically are tens or hun- even hundreds of thousands of words long, is that there are so many things that can go wrong. Whether it's, oh, I'm I'm missing a comma where there should be one, or I misspelled this word. Or it could be like, you you know, you've omitted some really crucial concept halfway through this book. And now the second half of the book doesn't make any sense in context without it, because maybe you take your own knowledge for granted, and you forget that you need to cover something really important that a newcomer to your subject wouldn't necessarily know. And there's just no way you can possibly account for everything that can go wrong all by yourself or even with the work of a single editor. That's why every book I've ever worked on, I have really stressed the importance of using a large group of beta readers, people from many different backgrounds, maybe people who are super familiar with your subject, but also some novices, people who know you personally, and also people who are complete strangers to come in and actually each one of them to read every line of your draft and tell you, okay, well, you know, here's where I'm still confused. Or why doesn't this part come earlier in the book? Or you're repeating yourself here? Or, oh, you misspelled this word here. Because to me, that is really the only way to make sure you have covered every single inch of your draft, especially if it's a really long book.
0: Well, I think that's one of the most difficult parts. Because like, just using me as an example for right now, my book is about being an expat, about expat lifestyle, and about the world that I live in. But I've been an expat for 20 years. So it's so difficult for me to remember what it was like when I was first starting out. So I think that's going to be very common with a lot of people. If they're writing about a subject that they understand so well, it's kind of difficult to put themselves in that position when the reader knew nothing, when the person writing uh, didn't have that type of experience and explain it in a way that is concise. Yeah, that is a big subject in
1: one of the chapters of my book. I call that unconscious competence, when you are so good at something that you don't have to think about it to do it. And the great thing about unconscious competence is it makes you really good at doing a certain thing, but not necessarily very good at explaining that thing that you know how to do really well. And to write a book, you have to explain what you know, right? That's the whole point of writing, to put it into words. And if you can actually do that, like if you can reverse engineer the things that you now know on an intuitive level and put them into words that make sense for somebody who has no familiarity with what you're writing about, it actually makes you like 10 times better at that thing now. It's actually probably the best way I can picture to get even better at something you already thought you were pretty good at is to have to explain it in excruciating detail to somebody who doesn't know anything about it.
0: So what are some tips or tricks for people out there who maybe do writing on their own? And it doesn't necessarily be have to be writing at the level of um, publishing a book, but even the people who do their own blogs or do explainer videos or things like that. Do you have any tips or tricks or uh, recommendations for people how to explain these things in a concise and organized manner?
1: Well, most people do recommend starting with an outline. And I think that's Good advice for very important reasons, not just because it'll, you know, help you stay organized or remind you of what you want to write about, but because an outline is like an ideological map. It should be able to take you step by step from the beginning of the book, you know, the introduction or chapter one, where you're first opening up what the book is going to be about, laying certain premises all the way through to the end, where you can come to some grand sweeping conclusion where you can say, okay, now you know how to do this thing that I've been explaining to you the last few hundred pages. And between those two points, there are going to be certain chapters that cover specific subjects. And then you're going to have to break those chapters down even into more specific subjects. You're going to have to have a lot of bullet points that explain every new concept that has to build off of the one that came before it and lead into the one coming after it. So if you miss any one of those steps along the way, you're going to break the chain of causality, and you're going to make it hard for somebody to reach the same conclusion as you. And an outline, even if it's just bullet points within bullet points, will make it a lot easier for you to see if you are omitting any crucial step in there. And then once you have that down, you know, and it could be just ten different things you've written, it could be a hundred different steps you've written, It's simply a matter of filling those out with the appropriate verbiage, you know, making it sound like an actual conversation instead of just sentence
0: fragments. And do you prefer more conversational style writing? Do you think that's um, more what's uh, hot these days? I think every writer has
1: to be true to their own voice, and that in itself is probably one of the hardest parts of writing, not just communicating the information itself that could be explained literally as a series of bullet points, but making it sound like I am having a conversation with the person who wrote this book. And I think a lot of writers are afraid to show their own personality to a certain extent, and even a lot of editors think that their job is to make a book sound as generic and safe and simple as it could be, you know, eliminating unnecessary words and phrases and so forth. And to a certain extent, that makes sense, because it reduces the risk of offending anyone or confusing anyone. But it also eliminates all the uniqueness from a conversation. I have a very particular way of speaking and thinking, you could probably already hear it just in the way I've spoken so far. But if you were to read any one of my books, whether it's about branding or travel or writing a book or anything else that i know i'm gonna write next you're gonna see certain peculiarities in the way i phrase things like I, I actually had one of my editors uh deride me for using what she considered to be overly complicated phrasings in some places like if we, if we were talking about uh I, I was talking about the music that a person listens to while they write and how it can be effectively to overcome writer's block and she wanted me to use the subheading Sounds just to talk about this particular section in the book. And I said, that's not really how I would say it, though. I would say something like sonic landscape, you know, like just this weird, verbose way of thinking about it that kind of makes it sound a little more important, a little more pompous, but is definitely what Gregory Deal would say. And I chose to keep those things in because I want people to have the actual experience of talking to me while they read my book.
0: Oh, that makes perfect sense. I think that the descriptive language that people use in books can be very powerful. Um, I know from my own writing, the first instinct that I have is to try to get as much knowledge from my brain out of it and to you. But the more technical I got, the more uh, information that I had, the more difficult it became to read. And I think that the more stories and the more uh, personal connection that I tried to make with people, the um, the more clear and the more easily understood it actually turned out to be. Yeah. You, and,
1: and some people are afraid to go personal with it too. You know, they think, well, why does anyone care about my life? Why does anyone care about my personal anecdotes? Or doesn't it just feel like I'm bragging when I talk about this really cool or interesting thing that happened to me? And very often that's actually what people need to make a personal connection to you or just to understand an example of what you're talking about. That can Make all the difference between people feeling like your book is forgettable, like informative but ultimately unremarkable, or something that really sticks with them.
0: So, when someone comes to you with an idea for a book, uh, what do they? What do you usually like to see in place um, to have a firm grasp uh, to go forwards with them?
1: I want to feel like they actually know what it is they're trying to say. I think a lot of people who know they want to be authors don't really know why they want to be authors they just want to write a book for the sake of writing a book or for the identity that comes with being an author i want to work with people who really feel like they have something valuable and most importantly unique to say and that can come from many different places and you could have many unique and valuable things to say i think i'm probably gonna write dozens of books over the course of my life and if, if I get that sense when I'm talking to you that you know specifically why you want to write this book in the way you want to write it, I, I know then that it will be possible for us to go through all the minutiae and tedium of actually
0: bringing that out in the book. So more than just uh, bragging rights, they have to have a real clear objective of the purpose of the book.
1: Right, it it should be about what they perceive the importance of the message to be, not just because oh, I really want to write this book, I think people are going to
0: love this book, mm-hmm. or think that it's going to make them piles of money or make them you know famous things like this.
1: Right, and it could like those things are certainly possibilities, but I don't think those should be the primary motivator for why, especially a first time author, should be uh, so desperate to to bring a message to the world especially because as you've learned through the last six months it is a full-time job if you do it right it's not you know it's not as simple as a lot of self-publishing gurus try to make it sound Oh, anyone can write an amazon bestseller in 30 days and pay someone on Fiverr to make a cover and suddenly you're world famous for being the go-to expert on whatever your niche is like that's i mean that can be done but is that really what you want to do
0: well i think that's I more of the exception than the rule <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I
1: mean, any, anybody can sell a book if it's written about something that happens to be popular and topical right now, but I'm more concerned with timeless things that haven't been adequately covered in the domain of books. It's amazing to me that in the age of information where we have access to so much more knowledge than has ever existed before. There are still so many important things that I think really haven't
0: been adequately ever yet. See, that's an interesting topic, because with the internet and being as vast as it is, you would pretty much assume that anything that could be written basically has been written already. No, absolutely not.
1: At least not to the level of depth where it's meaningful and Part of what makes a book a book is that it caters to long form, in depth communication so much better than any other communication medium that exists, including YouTube channels, podcasts, e- blogs, right? Uh, partially because of the length again, because you can write hundreds of thousands of words. My new book now is the longest one I've ever written. It's about 130,000 words, which translates to about 500 pages or 12 hours of audio narration. And I'm quite frankly amazed that I had that much to say. Like, I've been doing this a while, I kind of know what I'm talking about, but I, I had no idea that it would go on that long when I began writing it. And that's part of what makes books work is that there's no way I could communicate that same amount and depth of information in any other medium
0: that currently exists. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I think that... There is a lot to be said for long format and really explaining an idea. It it does take more than a 800 word blog article or even a series of blog articles
1: or a series of, of, you know, instructional videos. Like you, you can get certain things across. I don't mean to demean these other mediums. They're certainly more convenient and accessible in many ways, but they don't quite reach that same level of importance, prestige. I, I think there's a reason why books have remained popular for, basically since the invention of the printing press. I think there's a reason why we react so emotionally when we talk about things like book burning. I think there's a reason why we save shelves of our favorite books for decades, because we recognize on some level the importance of what books represent if they're written about important, timeless things.
0: Well, that's an interesting concept as well, because like, I have a two-year-old at the house. Uh, my daughter's yeah, two, two and a half years old. And she doesn't know, she doesn't understand, but sometimes she'll get a book and she'll tear one of the pages. And, you know, I'm a reader, my wife is a reader, my mother's a reader. And we're always like, no, you have to respect the book. Like we we always try to teach, you know, respect for books. Like there's so much value. Like I, I think you'd, you'd be hard pressed to find anything else in the world that has as much value with such a low price point to entry.
1: Yeah, and, you know, when was the last time you cared so much if you scratched a DVD? When was the last time you even played a DVD? Oh, God, never. (laughs) They get obsolete so quickly, right? There's certain mediums just by nature of our technological advancement only stick around for a few years, right? Whereas in books, although, you know, our technology for printing improves, certainly, like print-on-demand is a relatively recent development, uh, the fundamental form and function of a book has not changed for hundreds of years, and there's a reason for that.
0: Well, even with the Kindle, I have so many people who recommend to me get to get a Kindle. I, I got one of those and it didn't do it for me. I, I'm old fashioned. I wanted paper. I wanted the smell of the book. I want to hold it and feel the weight of it and, and see the cover and, and all of it. I want the entire experience. I don't find that any technology has ever been able to replace that.
1: Right. And I'm, I'm like audiobooks, you know, just because they're convenient. Like I can listen to narration on my Audible app at uh, 1.5 times speeds while I'm driving or, or doing some other mindless task that doesn't really require my full attention. And that's certainly a nice benefit. But at the end of the day, it, it doesn't have that same emotional feel as actually holding a hardcover book in my hand or even seeing my own books in print and seeing my name and, and my words in that timeless form has a measurable impact on me and certainly anyone that I show my books to, right? It, it creates an impression like, oh, this guy's important
0: you wrote a book about this, he must really know what he's talking about. Well, it's that instant authority in that space. If you wrote the book on it, like like that's literally a saying. He wrote the book on it, you know? So it's difficult to get that type of magnitude and importance from any other type of medium.
1: Yeah, and people don't even have to read the book to get that. They just have to know that you wrote the book and they'll immediately assume you must know what you're talking about. Or even if they're not actually interested in the subject of the book, they say, oh, well, this guy's an author, so let's treat him like he's a high status individual, you
0: know? With a lot of my coaching clients, we talk about positioning. So some of the positioning tactics that we will use will be speaking on stage um having a type of medium like a podcast or a YouTube channel things like this but really the ultimate is being an author having a a book out there under your name and then i suppose one step higher is bestseller status
1: yeah i mean that's that's a cre- a useful marketing term certainly it is a little bit ambiguous cuz it depends if you mean new york times bestselling author or Amazon best-selling author because to be an Amazon best-selling author, all you have to do is get your book to the number one spot in any of the ten thousand Kindle subcategories that exist, and you only need to be up there for a minute to technically be able to call yourself a Amazon best-selling author. And some of these categories are super uncompetitive, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be a category that's actually related to the subject of your book. So there are some what I would consider less than scrupulous authors who sort of exploit that flaw in the system to present themselves as slightly more successful or prestigious than they actually might be. And then of course there are some amazing books that actually sell uh, dozens of copies a day, but they're in super competitive category, so they never actually reach the number one spot, but their books are far more successful and probably far better books. So I, I think at most at this point calling yourself a best-selling author, and I don't even know what it takes to become a New York Times bestselling author, but I know there are ways to cheat that system too. I think it's much more impressive just to say that you have a book that consistently sells well and that is constantly earning positive reviews and feedback from its readers. That's enough for me.
0: So talk to me a little bit about how you make sure that you get those types of reviews for the book because I think that they are really, really important, especially on a platform like Amazon where it's really the social proof that helps sell things more than anything.
1: Yeah, and on many levels too, like uh, the primary way I now drive new traffic to my book listings, even the ones that have been up there for a couple of years now and already, you know, word of mouth now exists for them among certain communities, is through paid ads on Amazon's platform. They have their own PPC ad campaigns. And the thing is, the number of reviews and the average review rating are prominently displayed on every ad that you run, let alone, of course, too, when you actually click on the ad itself and you immediately see, okay, well, 136 people have reviewed this and it has a 4.6 average rating. So that means that if only one or two people have reviewed your book and maybe if you have a couple one or two star reviews that bring the average rating down, any form of advertising and promotion you try to do is essentially going to be nullified or possibly even work against you, especially if you're paying for every click you get and then those clicks don't turn into sales so it is absolutely vital that as soon as possible after a book launches that you start to get genuine honest reviews from actual Amazon users and readers who say yes i endorse this book yes it was worth the time and the money that it took to read it and people don't leave reviews as often as you might expect that they do especially happy readers unhappy readers are much more likely to leave a review happy ones unfortunately you know there are going to be people who say oh well it it was an okay book but there was a there was a typo on page
0: 136 so don't buy my book then because i I'm, i'm struggling with this still after six iterations of the book just gonna take a quick break Okay, new book is here. It's called Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. This book took me seven months to write and publish, and it's a culmination of some of the best stuff I've learned over my 20 years living as an expat. I cut out all the crap and tried to give you the real meat with this book. If you ever wanted to live overseas, or if you are already living overseas and you want to take things to the next level, to legally reduce your tax bill, to live a more international life, and get the best of everything planet Earth has to offer, then you must go to Amazon right now and purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Pause the episode and go take a look. It's cool. I'll wait. Seriously, you guys are going to love this. Enjoy the book.
1: Yeah, so you really got to um, like prompt people to leave reviews. You know, not not like trick them or manipulate them, or trying to create some kind of inaccurate impression. But you know, just tell people you can either recruit them before the book's even released and say, "Hey, I'm going to need a lot of reviews." So you can either, but you should recruit reviewers even before your book is launched. You know, just explaining to them in honest terms this is really important for my promotion so you know if i give you an advanced copy of my my book would you be willing to leave a short and honest review on amazon when it comes out and that's kind of important stressing to them that one it doesn't have to be very long because people don't like to write paragraphs and paragraphs and two stress that you know i i want you to be honest like you know share your actual thoughts and make sure that they understand how much it actually helps the success of your book Because people are much more likely to do you favors if they think that their favor has a measurable impact on you and that they are appreciated for what they're doing. And then even after, you know, again, even for my books that have been out for a couple of years, I'm constantly reminding people who read them and even ones who email me or reach out to me on social media saying, oh, I read your book and I just wanted to tell you I loved it. I say, oh, thanks for the compliments. Hey, by the way, would you mind taking 60 seconds to write me a short review on Amazon, just sharing what you thought? Because again, it's super important for the promotion I do for my book. And more often than not, I find when I take that approach, people are actually quite willing to help. And I think that is probably the most reliable way to continually get more and more positive reviews as your book continues to be on sale. Well,
0: it's the exact same thing with podcasts. You know, my podcast goes out on a dozen different, not a dozen, maybe 50 different platforms, but iTunes is the one that is the largest marketplace. So similar to books uh, with Amazon, we have iTunes for podcasts. And I'm constantly reminding people, please write a review of the show. You know, I get tens of thousands of downloads, but still every day I want people to review the show. It's amazing to me sometimes that someone will listen to 20 hours of my program, but for 60 seconds for them to write a review to get them to do that the motivation to do that is is very challenging so i assume it would be very similar with a book well i think most of them uh, one
1: again don't really understand how important it is like to them it's just a very casual thing and they it's not that it's hard to do again you can just write a few sentences and that's enough Although some people do write paragraphs and paragraphs, which I always find interesting. It's it's just that they get distracted. They're in the middle of something else. So they need to be prompted, hey, can you do this right now? Just click this button and type something and click submit. Please. Thank you very much. And if you can do that, then I think your
0: odds are pretty good. So making that personal connection with someone and blatantly asking them, uh, please do A, please do B, please do C, you know, explaining the time length, explaining how long... Uh, how much they need to write, all of these things can really help build the reviews on a book or any other platform.
1: Sure. And even, you know, less than perfect reviews can actually be really helpful, too. If you have nothing but five star reviews and all of them are two sentences long that say, oh, best book ever. You know, that's not a very convincing argument for people to buy your book. But if you have, you know, a couple of four star reviews and one of them goes on for paragraphs and paragraphs saying, you know, this book was a little too long in this part, a little redundant here. And I couldn't quite understand what he was talking about here, but here's where the real value of the book is. And then they really go into what they liked about it. That's a much more convincing argument to buy the book than just, yeah, this book is great. Five stars.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like when I read reviews on Amazon, the ones that are one sentence long, I probably don't even look at. I'm probably looking for the ones that are a little bit more meaty, and you can really see that someone really took time and effort to, to dig into this and really consume the content in a meaningful way.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's why I think the best reviews come from people who actually read the book of their own volition and then took the time to contact you and tell you that they read your book. And to do that, you have to have a good book that people actually want to read and digest and think deeply about and then be prompted to reach out to the author.
0: Well, that makes sense. So a moment ago, we spoke about sending people pre-released copies of the book. How would that affect um, the verified buyers? Because usually when I'm I'm looking at reviews, I'll notice on the side it will say a, vi- a verified buyer.
1: Yeah, the verified purchase system on Amazon is... Uh, kind of a tricky little devil to work with i'm not certain exactly what impact it has i don't think anybody is exactly certain but it does seem to make a difference for what kind of reviews stick on the site because amazon is notorious for reviewing for removing reviews under certain circumstances and it seems to affect how amazon displays and ranks the book in other words it will come up more often in search results and rank higher in their subcategory rankings if the book has a lot of verified purchase reviews as opposed to unverified purchase reviews and that's just the label they give it when somebody has actually purchased the book from their Amazon account. Anybody with an Amazon account can leave a review of any product, but if Amazon actually sees that you have purchased this product before leaving a review, then they give it that little verified purchase stamp. And, uh, yeah, that won't apply if you're just giving out free copies of your books. But, you know, maybe you can convince the people that you give your books to, would you mind paying 99 cents to pre-order the ebook before it's released? You know, most people in my experience don't have a problem doing that. If you've been so kind as to give them a free copy of your book, you're not allowed to require them to do that according to Amazon's terms of service. But, you know, most of them I find don't have a problem with that. Oh, and then there are the free ebook promotions too, which you can make your book free for a while, like up to a few days. And if somebody downloads the Kindle version while it's on a free promotion, that counts as a purchase too. So that's a clever little hack too, if you can get them to do that before they leave the review.
0: So, does that really work? Because usually, in my experience, when you try to give away free things, actually, it can be a lot more difficult, especially um, difficulty to actually have them consume the content because i find that if you pay you pay attention what's your experience with that
1: yeah i think that's certainly true and actually you know we could talk about pricing strategies but more often than not i found that if i price my books higher they sell more and i get better reviews i've done a lot of experimentation with pricing a lot of new authors will try to really uh, bargain price their books because they don't think anybody will, will buy it if it's more than 99 cents or more than a few dollars or maybe 10 or $12 for the paperback. And maybe this only works for a certain kind of book, but I found if I charge twenty or twenty-five dollars for a paperback, I actually sell more copies than if I charge ten or fifteen dollars. Or if I charge nine ninety-nine for the ebook as opposed to two ninety-nine or four ninety-nine. Again, I actually sell more and I think I get more of the right kind of readers. Because if the book is priced higher, only people who actually really want to read that particular kind of message and are the most qualified for it and the most convinced that it's the book that they want are going to make that financial investment. If it's 99 cents, anybody who's just kind of half-heartedly interested might buy it and skim through it and say, oh, this sucks. I don't like this. Two stars, you know, but somebody who's going to pay more for it is really going to digest the content and then be more likely to get the full intended value of the
0: book. So it's that perceived value at the higher price ranges. Right. And if your book
1: is any good at all and is written about something that, you know, you consider important, and that hopefully readers consider important. It should be worth more than ninety nine cents, right?
0: Well, absolutely. When I look at the amount of work that I've put into books, Jesus, and and the amount that I've paid for books in the in the past, I, I certainly don't hum and haw. You know, whether it's a uh, a $20 book or if it's a $10 book, it doesn't really matter to me now. I, know, I understand the work that goes into it, the time and the energy and the effort, and how even one sentence or one paragraph from the entire you know, 100, 200-page book could actually have a huge impact on my business.
1: Right. Business books are a great example of that, or really any kind of how-to advice book about an important subject. If you learn just a few useful things from a really good business book, or um, I helped my friend, uh, Livier Wagner, publish a book about expat taxes, which is a notoriously complex subject, and there's not a lot of really good, reliable information for American expats who pay their taxes from other countries, and, you know, a single mistake there can cost you a lot of money or even get you arrested, right? And so... You know, paying $20 for his book, even if it only teaches you a few useful things you didn't know about the American tax system for expatriates, you've well more than gotten your money's worth, right? Even if you learn just one or two important things, let alone if you actually digest the whole book, into a whole new paradigm about how taxes work. Business books are the same thing. I'm helping a guy right now named Sean Plotkin who is writing a book about the American bail bond system, which, if you look is a subject it's almost impossible to find reliable information on from one authoritative source so his book is going to be the first of its kind that addresses you know here's how bailing someone out of jail works in america and here are all the weird little tricks you should know to make sure you're doing it right and not get ripped off and hopefully not go to jail and so again for somebody in the right situation where you know they're desperate for information they're not going to you know hesitate. Oh, I don't know. It's, it's $2 more than I'd like to spend on this vital information
0: that I need right now. So with those types of informational books, how do you keep them relevant? Because so many things change, you know, if we're talking about law, if we're talking about taxation, if we're talking about things like that, those are not just general concepts. Those are things that are updated annually or biannually. How do you write a book like that? Some things
1: uh, by their nature, you know, you can't, make them completely timeless everything has certain timeless qualities to it and i struggled with the same thing while writing the influential author uh, writing important books sharing important ideas changing people's philosophies that's a timeless concept right but the specific ways to do that as a self-publisher is extremely topical that changes on a yearly basis basis right like even in the year that i was writing the influential authors certain key parts of using Amazon and KDP and CreateSpace changed while I was writing the book and I had to edit the content because of that. And I can predict a year after it's released, I might have to make some changes to the book, you know, release a second edition. And I can do that or I can just tell readers, you know, this information is true at the time that I have written it. Try not to make too much of the value transfer of the book dependent on those very specific topical things and hope that they're getting the majority of the value from the timeless things that don't change. In the case of the tax book, we did release a new updated edition for 2018. It was originally released in 2017 and we'll probably do the same thing during tax time in 2019. And, you know, I don't know how many things are going to change about the tax code. That's not my job to keep on top of those things. That's Olivier's job. But he and I will be able to make the necessary changes to the book. And because Amazon and, and KDP are extremely easy to use, we can update that content anytime we want and just say, hey, it's been updated for 2019 now
0: so would you sell that as a completely new book or would it just be an updated and you would keep all of the reviews and the ranking and the rating and everything that was on the previous version
1: oh no i would just update it because once you have the 2019 version there's no reason for the 2018 version to still exist why would you buy the 2018 version if the 2019 version now exists there may be cases where it makes sense to have multiple versions for sale at any given time, like the original version, and then maybe the 10th anniversary version. But in these cases, no, I
0: I would just update the initial listing. And then so just on the cover, you would put um, like a little subheading, you know, updated for 2019, something like this? Exactly. Right.
1: And we want to make that information very prominent because people looking for textbooks are probably going to be looking for the ones that are most up to date. They don't want one that was published six years ago. They want one that is current for right now.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. 100%. I guess i had never really thought it through. But actually, what you're saying makes perfect sense. I think with my own book, I had spent, even with my own book, I tried to give more of the mental and the thought process behind being an expat um, and using the offshore markets opposed to giving the The exact information of, okay, this is what this government does at this time, because I know that they're going to change the rules, they're going to change the laws. So I really focused on trying to make things evergreen and have the mindset as the prominent part of the book.
1: Yeah. And that might be a case where certain things like blogs and YouTube channels and podcasts are more serviceable in certain ways because you can write an 800 word blog post about some new change that just happened in the government of Lithuania. Right. And I can go viral and and rank really well on Google for people searching for that specific thing. Right. But a book written entirely about that is going to be really hard to justify the existence of and to keep it popular. But if you can write the book about the timeless concepts and principles behind what governments do and then maybe give some topical examples, that makes a lot more sense for the
0: medium. Very interesting. So talk to me a little bit more about the books that you have wrote and why you decided to write them, why you felt like this needed to be put forth in the marketplace. Well, as I
1: mentioned before, the first book I wrote was a book on brand identity or meaningful communication in business. Brand Identity Breakthrough happened simply because it was the easiest book for me to write at the time that I started writing books. It happened as a result of me getting defrauded by someone who promised to be able to help me write and publish an Amazon bestseller. And that's the kind of fraud I have since learned is shockingly common. This area is just full of people who over-promise, under-deliver, talk themselves up a lot, and really pretend to know more than they do. And unfortunately, I didn't learn all this until I had already lost $5,000 and wasted about nine months of my time from this woman. And then after all that had happened, I had to make the choice if I was going to continue with publishing the book on my own with the work that had already been done on it or just give up and cut my losses. And I'm very glad today, now three years later, that I made the choice to proceed with publishing that book because it has been very successful. It's earned me a lot of money in royalties. It's helped my brand as an entrepreneur grow a lot and obviously it has led to the writing of my other books and now to the development of identity publications
0: so do you think that she maliciously went out there and defrauded you or you think that she honestly believed she could do it and actually just did not have the skills or abilities to make this come to fruition
1: i think she is the symptom of online entrepreneur culture which is that if you know a little bit about how to do something and someone else doesn't know anything about how to do it, you act like you are the number one expert guru in the world for this very specific <laughs> thing. they suddenly learned how to do I think she had a basic understanding of it and thought that she could do it, and she saw that I didn't know anything about it, so she said, give me $5,000 and I'll take care of everything. I'm the world's best publisher, you know, and I was young and stupid and naive enough to believe her because I figured why would somebody take the risk of lying about something like this and ruining their own reputation. And it took me much too long to accept the truth that she was just stringing me along for a very long time.
0: I understand what you're talking about. Um, because I think that a lot of gurus, you know, the guru at the top of the mountain, they make things sound like incredibly easy. You know, uh, I've been an entrepreneur for a very long time. I will tell people straight up this shit is not easy. This stuff is hard. You can't just go to ClickFunnels and, you know, build a funnel and then within two weeks you're going to be doing a million dollars. It doesn't work like that. There are so many skills. There are so many things that you need to know and understand. And that's why we're more than 50 episodes in on this podcast and literally every single one has been about a different topic. And these are all skills that entrepreneurs need to at least have some type of a grasp of. And that's why I think the, the topic of entrepreneurship, there is so much depth to it. Because it just goes on and on and on. Oh, yeah. I mean,
1: again, I, I told you I was surprised at how long the influential author ended up being. Just that I had so much to say about the subject. And I will never claim that I am the world's leading expert on self-publishing. But just even with, with a few years of experience here and some success under my belt, I had so much to say. And I even say many times throughout the book, there are still things you're going to have to figure out for your specific situation. Like, this is not a complete guide to everything you need to know step by step. Here's how to be successful as an author. It's here are the principles you will need to know. Now figure out how to adapt them to your situation, right? There's still a lot of work that comes
0: into it, even after you've read everything that I had to say. That was a 500 page book. And still there were things that didn't get included in it. That's incredible. Because how yeah, how could I possibly tell
1: every single person, you know, specific advice for their specific book and their
0: specific goals, right? It's endless. It's infinite. Well, for any of my listeners who have been following the show for a while, they know that just the topic of books in general, I think is just so fascinating. So tell me, okay, so that was your first book, Gregory. Tell me a little bit about your second book. It's
1: probably something you'd find pretty interesting it's called travel as transformation subtitle conquer the limits of culture to discover your own identity it ended up being something of a mix between a personal development book and a travel memoir where the intention really for me was to write a travel book that was unlike any other travel book that had ever been written before and that i didn't talk about amazing places to go and things to see and the, and the practicalities of living out of a backpack or anything like that, but more the psychological impact that living a nomadic lifestyle has on you, especially if you start doing it from a young age before your cultural identity is really cemented. Because I've been traveling since I turned 18, basically, and I'm 30 now. So for the last 12 years, I have been making my home wherever I have and discovering my values and identity as I go. And I think people who just live in one place their whole life don't really have that freedom of choice and they're unconsciously affected by what everyone around them believes, even if they think that they're thinking for themselves.
0: Oh, we could go into a very long conversation about this. I think uh, right off the bat, maybe we we should have started with this part um, in the interview. But um, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on that point that travel totally reshapes you as a human being. I really find that if you go on a two-week vacation, you are still the same human being at the end of two weeks. Try going on a two-month or a two-year or a 20-year trip. Like, I've been an expat living abroad for about 20 years now. I don't even remember what it's like to just live in one place or one town and have the same friends forever. And... I imagine living a, uh, a nomadic lifestyle, like you said, is is really a continuation of that.
1: Yeah. And uh, again, it really has to do with your concept of identification, which, you know, as you can tell by the name of my publishing company, Identity Publications, is kind of a recurring theme in everything I talk about or write about. How do you know who you are? Is it just a series of ideas that someone else or an entire society of people put in your brain? Or do you actually believe the things you believe for some intrinsic, authentic reason, right? If you don't identify as a Californian, in my case, where I come from, San Diego, or a Filipino, because I'm in the Philippines now, or an Ecuadorian, if you grew up in Ecuador, uh, how do you identify yourself? Why do you believe the things that you believe? Have you tested these things that you believe? Do they stick with you where they're not being reinforced by external sources? And how can you ever really know the answers to these questions if you don't go out and explore many other possible ways you could live and identify?
0: So what brought about that type of thinking? Was there like an aha moment or something that clicked for you? Is this just a culmination of your years of being abroad?
1: Well, like I said, I started really young. So uh, for me, it, it was just curiosity at the beginning. I knew I didn't want to go to college. I had a little bit of money, and I had the opportunity to go to Costa Rica. So I went because I could. I hardly knew anything about Costa Rica. I didn't even speak Spanish. But once I got there, I became aware of the fact that the world was much larger than I had been led to believe that it was. I mean, obviously, I understood conceptually that the world was a very large place. But experientially, I realized that there was this whole other way of living, this whole other society with its own rules and its own people and its own culture and then to realize that that was just one of nearly 200 countries in the world that i hadn't seen yet right it's just mind-blowing to and then to come up with a drive to want to see as much of the world as i could right just to see what else it was i had been missing All things considered on the scale of the world, going from California to Costa Rica isn't actually that big of a change. I realize that now as as opposed to what going somewhere in Africa or like a developing part of Eastern Europe or China. Like there there are much bigger differences out there now, but at the time that was the biggest difference I'd ever seen. And so I, I really just became obsessed with plunging myself into the most uncomfortable, strange, foreign conditions that I could, not to have a fun time as a world traveler or anything like that, because a lot of it was not fun and not enjoyable, but just to see what else was possible. And I, I don't know why I have such a strong impulse for that. And it's certainly changed a lot in the last 12 years. Like, I don't travel nearly as rapidly now as I used to. I tend to stay at least three to six months in a place now. I actually own two homes now one in ecuador one in armenia and you know so I'm, I'm at the stage in my life where i'm putting down roots in a sense at least in a relative context for someone like me and i'm really reassessing what i now know about the state of the world as a whole and where i feel most comfortable in it where i could actually consider my home and and feel most comfortable being myself and i think that can really only come as a result of a lot of self-searching internally and external searching where you actually go and see what the world can offer, not just because you happen to be born in one place and it's convenient for you to go to
0: one or two places. So talk to me a little bit about some of the similarities that you have seen by visiting so many countries. Because I know in my own experience, um, well, I have my own opinions about human beings and, and, and how we are as a species, but I'd really like to dig into what you've seen um, from being abroad for so long.
1: Well, there are some shocking similarities. You, could, you can find that there are certain principles that show up everywhere you go, the expression of which just change depending on where you are, like you know the kind of food that people like to eat or the, the way they express their relationships with each other. Um, certain cultural values or religion, religious practices that show up over and over again, just with a different set dressing, you know, between countries. And in some ways it starts to seem absurd because you realize that some subgroups of people will completely hate and vilify other subgroups of people for what seem like the most ludicrous reasons, right? Because they do things a slightly different way and in the grand scheme of things really you know to you it looks like they're they're quite similar like if you looked at human beings from an alien's perspective you'd see a lot of similarities in the way our species expresses itself and the way we live but on the surface level right we call things by different names we speak different languages we wear different clothing you know and and so we we form this uh, these barriers between our many many different subgroups because we put a different surface Appearance on the many ways that we do essentially the same thing around the world and that's kind of infuriating for someone like me to see that I I find our world to be just really unnecessarily divisive and and inefficient in so many ways. And maybe it's, I have a brain that seems to be really well-wired for systems and efficiency, and it drives me mad when I see people living in ways that are unnecessarily harmful to themselves and their neighbors. And, you know, why don't we have world peace, like this elusive goal that everybody talks about as something that everybody wants but is impossible to achieve in practice? And to me, the obvious answer is because we all identify with certain arbitrary limits that are not inclusive of the limits that other people identify themselves by. Why do we have 196 countries? What an arbitrary number? Why not 197? Why not 195? Why not a million? Why not two? Right? Well, because that's just the way that the world worked out and the way that groups identify themselves and set up barriers between each other. And I don't just mean physical barriers like Trump's wall or something. I mean, economic barriers, cultural barriers. I mean, just... Things that stop us from interacting with each other and identifying with each other and sharing with each other. And it's all it's all just madness to me. The world the world's a really crazy place, in my opinion. And that's the kind of thing you can't really get a sense of until you've seen enough of the world, I think. And not just seeing the world like as a tourist, but actually like really living among many different cultures of people of all economic statuses and and all different parts of the world. I've made it a personal mission of mine to really start to feel like i actually live as a member in as many different countries as possible i've got three passports now working on four because i want to actually be accepted as a citizen in as many of these countries as i can that's part of why i bought property too because i want to actually be able to say I am a part of this culture. I am a part of this country now, while at the same time still being independent of it because I come from a different place and I know that I can leave anytime I want, so I've got one foot in and one foot out. I live between two worlds, and that's really the only way someone like me can live now because I will never go back to being Californian, even though I own a house in Armenia now and my grandmother was Armenian. I will never be Armenian in the sense that people who grow up there and are full-blooded members of the country and the community, but I can still actually interact as if I am one of their own while still living my own world that is international, that is inclusive of the whole world. I'm in the Philippines now. I will never be Filipino, but I know how to interact with the people here in a way that makes me feel like I am part of them, not living above them, but truly among them. And that's part of the reason why I came back here, because the Philippines is one of the countries I feel comfortable doing something like that. I couldn't do that in every country in the world, I'm sure. And that's just the kind of thing I've learned through painstaking experimentation in 56 countries now that I've been to. And even with all that experience, that's only about a fourth of the territories in the world, which is kind of crazy to think about. There is still so much more out there that I haven't seen. Some of which I can, you know, assume certain things about like certain Southeast Asian countries that I haven't been to yet. I, I kind of get a sense of what I know, what I think it would be like in Vietnam, even though I haven't been there yet. But I can't really say for sure, right? Like who knows what I'm missing by not being there. And, and the same applies to all the other countries I haven't been to.
0: I'm really curious for you, what are the things in your life that have shaped this this shift in identity that had a big impact for you? Was it getting a second passport? Was it getting a second home? Was it time that you spent in the con- in the country? What were the things that had the big impact for you to help shift your identity from what it was before to what it is now? Well, I've lost a lot of friendships and romantic relationships. That was probably a big part of it in, in the
1: most painful of ways because I think that's one of the, dominant ways that people define themselves by their social relationships, professional, friendly, romantic, familial. And uh, all of those at one point or another in my life, I have lost, replaced, lost again. And it's always evolving. It's always shifting. And, uh, I, you know, I, I think it's mostly because I change so much as a person that the kind of people that I grow close to probably get used to me being a certain way and they have a very convenient place to put me in their life, and then when it's no longer convenient for me to fill that role, they move on from that because that's usually what ends up happening, not that I kick them out of my life or something. I've had some very uncomfortable revelations where if I've been getting close to a girl that I've been dating for a few months and um, suddenly I realize, either just through my own inference or because she explicitly tells me, that she wasn't actually interested in getting close to me. she just saw me as an interesting foreign traveler to get close to who provided some entertainment in her otherwise monotonous life in whatever country I happen to be in. That's happened to me a few times now. And each time I'm surprised,
0: that's rough. <laughs> that's brutal. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's hor-
1: It's a horrible realization. it's It makes you feel very objectified. it's It's what I imagine. Certain women must feel like if they find out that someone's just been using them for sex, like just because, oh, you're interesting, you know, okay, well, that's a compliment. Thank you. But I don't want to just be your, your interesting doll for you to parade around, right? Or, or to fill up the boring parts of your life. I want to have a genuine connection with you that is immune to the circumstances of what we happen to be doing in our lives right now or the social role that you happen to be playing. And so finding that kind of connection with people, again, whether it's romantic or whatever, is probably the most difficult part of living this kind of life. I've had some very fulfilling, very rewarding relationships. I've also had some very horrendous breakdowns of what I thought were fulfilling and rewarding relationships. And I think loss like that is a necessary part of continually evolving as a person. And again, the relationships that I hold on to now with actual people or the places that I've purchased property and, and gotten citizenship are ones that I now feel the most comfortable continuing to invest myself into. Can that change in the future? Will I decide that I don't want to live in Ecuador or, or our media anymore? Yes, that can happen. I'm only 30. My life is just beginning, which is really quite shocking for me to think about all the things I've already done. And if that happens, I will adapt to the changes that happen to me internally or the changes that I witness in the world around me and new experiences I have, because what else can I do but continue to adapt?
0: So it's really the people that you've met on your travels that have helped form your identity opposed to a piece of paper in your back pocket, a passport or a property or a house or a home or things like this. It's really the people that have helped define you.
1: Well, those things are just tools. Passports are useful things to have, especially if you want to travel a lot. You need your permission slip to enter a certain country, right? And actually, I feel really bad for people who want to travel a lot and are coming from some of the less developed or less desirable countries in the world because you have to get visas everywhere you go. You know, and I was already pretty lucky as an American having a pretty powerful passport. Now I've got two more. So, you know, I've I've got pretty great travel options. And I feel really bad for people who just by the accident of their birth don't have that same freedom. It's not a fair system, sorry, you know? And all those things that maybe people typically define themselves by like cars, money, job titles, houses. It's to me, they're just tools, you know, they're things to help me get what I want right now. And as soon as they no longer fulfill that role in my life,
0: I will be happy to let them go. Well, as a side note, you know, I think a second passport is cool. But really, at the end of the day, I wish there there were no passports. I wish that we didn't need passports. And this goes back to your earlier point about the countries in the world. You know, why do we have borders? Why is there a 6,000-kilometer border between Canada and the United States? And why are we building a giant wall between the United States and Mexico right now? You know, these these things, if you look at them from a bird's-eye view, really they don't need to exist. And I wish that they didn't. I wish that we had that world peace that we spoke about. You know, it it seems so silly to me that you need to have a special piece of paper and get a stamp. And, you know, because I'm from Canada and my wife is from China, I can go to a country, but she can't go. You know, we're very well-to-do family. We have a lot of money. There's no risk of her staying in the country, but we have to get visas everywhere we go just so that she can enter. I think this is ridiculous. It's ludicrous.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, just the way that we have broken up the power structures on our planet. And there's nothing that any one of us as an individual we can do. It's only after the passage of many generations that the general awareness and consciousness about these things will start to change that if these things are really necessary. And I think they will change partially because technology changes so quickly that now we can travel more and and do more things than they could in any generation prior, and also because cultural exchange accelerates at probably the same pace of technology, you know, whether that's American movies are being shown in other countries, or we're just becoming more aware of the global community of human beings that make up this planet instead of just those in our backyards. I think the more that kind of exchange happens, the harder it will be to justify the current arbitrary division
0: that defines how our world works right now. Well, I certainly hope you are right. Gregory, it has been a absolutely fascinating conversation. It is so amazing to learn from you about the books and to hear a little bit about your travels and your perspective on identity. If my listeners, they want to get a hold of you, if they want to learn more about what you do, where can we send them? Well, uh,
1: if you want to talk to me about publishing, identitypublications.com, or you can email me, contact at identitypublications.com. You can add me on social media, Gregory V. Deal. Facebook is a pretty good one. I'm on there most days. It's a great way to maintain friendships when you're constantly hopping around from country to country.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Gregory, and I'll talk to you soon, okay? Thanks, bye. Okay, I want to read you the reviews from the back of the book that some massively famous people in the international living space have wrote for me. See if you recognize some of these names, okay? So Gregor Gregerson says, in Expat Secrets, Mikkel elegantly describes the many benefits that accrue to those that choose their country of residence and provides practical and timely tips and examples for doing so. This book is a game changer. Leif Simon says, having lived and worked overseas for more than a quarter century myself, I've seen expats make every mistake under the sun. Save yourself time and energy and learn from someone who has actually done it. Expat Secrets is the book to get you started in your international journey. Edmund John says, Having incorporated hundreds of companies for my clients over the last seven years, this book is very helpful for those that are starting out. And Michael Cobb says, a huge thanks to Mikkel for clearly written, concise description of the international experience as lived by a true globetrotting pioneer. Especially refreshing is the chapter on the benefits of raising kids overseas. As the father of two third culture kids, I can personally assure you that no education expands the mind more than growing up overseas. And my good friend David McKeegan wrote the foreword to this book. But I will let you read that yourself when you go to Amazon today and you purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Thanks, guys.
1: This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show
0: notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels.